Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. We finally have a president-elect for the next four years in the United States. Many people in the country seem to be shocked at the fact that the unexpected candidate won. There are people in multiple cities that are protesting against his win. There have been examples of racism occurring in some of our children's schools, and many people are afraid of what will happen when our new president takes the office. People are afraid about all the promises that he made during the election process, and there are people that are seriously contemplating moving out of the country. There is something that I have learned that makes me sadder than the previous news. It is a fact that members of the church, which are the body of Christ, are fighting with each other about who the other person voted for for the presidency. This happened before the election as well, but I believe that it has been worse after the election. They tell each other that as a Christian, they should have voted for the other candidate. Both sides do have their reasons if you listen to what they are saying. I want to ask all of you this question. When all of you decided to support one candidate to vote for them, did any of you hear the Holy Spirit telling you to choose that candidate? Did God tell any of you to pick a certain candidate? I am registered to vote and made my decision on a candidate, but I did not receive a message from God telling me who to vote for. I made sure to read all about their policies, what they stood for, and weighed both of their commitments before I made my decision as to who was the better person for the job. God did not let me know or put into my heart that a certain candidate must become our next president. But there are some people that I have met that told me that God told them who to vote for. The problem is, people who voted for both the candidates told me that God told them to vote for the candidate. Did the Holy Spirit really tell one person that they must vote for one candidate and then go to the other person? and tell them to vote for the other candidate? Do you think that is something our God would do?
First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33 tells us that our God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This verse is telling us that God is not there to put us through confusion or put us in confusing situations. He is there to give us peace or to unite us all. Is it right for members of the church to say to each other that they should have voted for the other candidate? Is that following the characteristics of God? Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21 explain to us about the deeds of the flesh. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. What does the Bible tell us about Christians being divided and condemning each other? It tells us that it is the deed of the flesh. Romans chapter 8 verse 6 teaches us that the mindset on the flesh is death. I believe that all of you who are registered to vote voted after carefully weighing your options and praying to God. I believe your decision also relies entirely on you. To vote for a president of the country is completely different than voting for deacons or elders of your church. That is because it requires different qualifications. As I told all of you before, we must not tell each other who the right candidate it was to support but pray that the candidate voted into the office will do God's work. The most important thing is not who becomes president, but if God will work through that person to fulfill his work. It is important to become a great leader, but if that leader is not used by our God for his work, then what is the point? We all must remember that God controls and rules over the whole world, and that nothing escapes His rule, whoever is elected into the office. Daniel, who interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 25, Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. Lay down his sweet head The stars in the sky Look down where he lay The little Lord Jesus Asleep on the
Next is sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is "You Are Not Alone," Part One, based on Acts chapter one, verses one through eight. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. And we said, okay, at the very beginning, this is our firefighting crew, and their obvious purpose is to do what? And everybody said, well, the purpose is to put out fires. Now, I intentionally misled them. That was the whole point of the illustration. But what I want to say to you this morning is that I think there's a great tendency in the church for us to get so consumed and caught up with our tasks and our responsibility and our gifts, our talents, our personalities that are different all across this room, that somewhere along the way we have the tendency to completely lose sight of the purpose of the church. The purpose that we were all giving ourselves to. Leading people, men, women, boys and girls, to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of why God has us here. To show and to share the gospel in Birmingham and in all nations. And I think that somewhere along the way we have a tendency to miss out on that purpose. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh no, not another, not a sermon about witnessing or evangelism. Oh, this is not my thing. I don't do that. I'm not good at that. And if that's what you're thinking, what I want to say to you this morning is, you're not alone. Literally, you are not alone. You are not intended to think, well, I can do that on my own. I can do this thing. What I want to show you in Scripture this morning from Acts chapter 1 is that we are not alone in the purpose for which God has created us as a church. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. We have sung about the Holy Spirit. What I want us to do is I want us to see in Scripture what the Holy Spirit's role is in our lives. If we're going to sing about Holy Spirit raining down, then we need to know what the Holy Spirit does when He rains down on us. I want us to take a biblical look amidst all the diverse opinions there are about what the Holy Spirit looks like in the church or in our lives. I want us to take a a biblical look at what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And somewhere along the way, I think we'll discover the purpose for each of our lives and the purpose for the church at Brook Hills. We're going to start in Acts chapter 1 and read the first eight verses, and we're really going to camp out on verse 8 especially. And I want you to see the Holy Spirit's role in our lives. And in your RBS, you've been looking at what spiritual authorities exist. And just like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, our battle is not against the flesh of this world, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the authorities of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The Holy Spirit is given to us for the spiritual battle we're involved in every day. Let's look at what he does. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. 
Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? First of all, if you're taking notes, I want you to see the Holy Spirit fills us with power. The Holy Spirit fills us with power. From the very beginning of this this text and this book, we see Jesus speaking to his disciples and he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come on you and you are going to be witnesses. Three times in this verse, verse 8, Jesus emphasized the Holy Spirit's going to be on you. Now, it's important for us to understand the context here. Now, who, who wrote the book of Acts? All right, this is the audience participation part of our program. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, very good. Luke also wrote the book of? Luke, very good. In the first book that he wrote, the book of Luke, we see Luke showing us the life of Jesus. And throughout Jesus' life, we see that the Holy Spirit was on him, leading him and guiding him. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go on people's lives. But when we get to Luke, we see chapter 4, verse 1, verse 14, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the Holy Spirit was on Jesus and leading Jesus. Everything he did was led by the Holy Spirit. And so we get to Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to go off the scene, ascend into heaven, and he says, now the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to have his power, and he's going to lead your life. It's almost like a relay race, passing the baton, and Jesus is passing the baton to his disciples and said, the Holy Spirit that has been on me is going to be on you, and you are going to need him. In fact, hold your place here and turn me back to the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24. I want you to see What Jesus says at the end of the book of Luke, kind of Luke's version of the Great Commission, before he ascends into heaven. Look with me at Luke chapter 24, and we'll read in verse 45 and the verses that follow there. I want you to hear. Now, these are the words, the last words Jesus is speaking to his disciples, so we know they're really important. Look at verse 45 in Luke 24. It says, He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what what is written the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you, listen to this, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Did you catch what Jesus just did? He said, all right guys, here's the message. Christ suffered, died, rose on the third day. There's the message you've got. Here's what you're going to ta- do, do with it. You're going to go out and preach it in all nations. You're going to proclaim this message. And he says, but before you even think about going to do that, don't miss the means by the, which this message is going to go out. The Holy Spirit's going to fill you. You're going to be clothed with power from on high. In other words, Jesus is telling these guys, don't even think about trying to do this on your own. And that's the whole point of showing and sharing the gospel in our lives. And what I want to say to you, encourage you with this morning, if you feel inadequate, If you feel like this is not your thing and you're just not good at introducing others to Christ or telling other people about the gospel, if that's the way you feel and that's exactly how you should feel, that's the whole point. 
Just like we talked about a few weeks ago, if you were here, as we walked from beginning to end in Scripture and looked at Psalm 67, God desires to bless us so that His glory would be made known in all nations. God has designed this whole thing we call evangelism, designed this whole witnessing thing, so that in the end, our weakness is put on display and He has to show His strength or else we fall flat on our faces. It's all designed so that you don't get the credit for leading people to Christ. It's all designed so that his glory is made known. And if you've had the opportunity to share the gospel with people, you know that it's in those times where the Holy Spirit is clearly showing that it's not you, it's him. Let's admit it. For us to go out this week into our homes and into the places where we work and to tell people about what we would even say is a foolish message and expect them to hear our words turn their lives upside down, reorient their their entire lives, believe in the message we're sharing, and experience an entire new life through Jesus Christ just because of what we say. Are we really good enough to do this? Are you really that smart? Are you that intellectual, that charismatic? No. That's the whole point, though. The Holy Spirit is there to fill us with power to do what we are not able to do on our own. Go with me back to the beginning of Acts. Look over in Acts chapter 2. I want you to see this, a beautiful illustration of exactly what we're talking about right here. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down on the people of God at what we call Pentecost. They all begin to speak in different languages. It's an amazing scene. But I want you to look with me at verse 14. I want you to look at what happens. Verse 14, after the Holy Spirit's come down, it says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. And basically, Peter begins to preach the first Christian sermon boldly standing up in front of the whole crowd. Now, think about this guy, Peter. When was the last time we saw Peter in the book of Luke? What was he doing? He was denying Christ. The guy was ashamed to even admit that he knew Jesus. Certainly not willing to tell people about Jesus. So how did Peter go from the place where he was afraid to even talk about Jesus to the point where he is standing up in front of a whole crowd of people boldly preaching the gospel? What's the difference? Well, In between the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and sent who down to Peter? The Holy Spirit. And it made all the difference in the world. And I think that's great encouragement for you and me this morning. A lot of us find ourselves in Peter's situation. We're timid. We're scared at this idea that we need to be sharing the gospel. And we shirk back at that responsibility. How do we go from that point to the point where you're boldly and clearly sharing the gospel? The difference is not your intellect. The difference is not your strength or the faith you can muster up. The difference is the Holy Spirit in your life. Ordinary people are doing extraordinary things all throughout the book of Acts because the Holy Spirit is on them. I laugh whenever I think about this. I remember in college, I was, I was rooming with two guys at one point, all three of us living in the same room, and neither of them were believers I had shared the gospel with them many times, but they just, for whatever reason, had never, never accepted the gospel. Their hearts were hard toward the gospel. I remember one night I went to bed before they did, and they were just sitting up watching TV. They told me the next morning, in the middle of the night, I apparently sat up in my bed. They were like, Dave, you sat up in your bed, and you just started telling us all about how Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave and how we can have our lives changed because of that. Sleep evangelism, all right? You ought to try it sometime. <laughs> how cool would that be? To wake up in the middle of the night and see, see your friends at your bedside giving their life to Christ. I mean, that'd be pretty amazing. I'm just willing to believe that if we'd give ourselves to telling people about Christ, we'd see the power of the Holy Spirit work in ways that we never could have imagined. I think that's what we see throughout the book of Acts and throughout the history of the church. One of my favorite guys in the history of the church is a guy named D.L. Moody. He started doing inner city work in Chicago 
and started preaching. God was pouring down his spirit on Dale Moody. People were coming to Christ left and right. He began to preach in different cities in America than in England. Revival and awakening just breaking out wherever he preached. I remember reading in his biography about one particular town. They were discussing who to have come and speak at their revival meetings. And everybody was talking about D.L. Moody. We need to get D.L. Moody. One guy stood up in the front and said, I don't understand why we need to get D.L. Moody. It's not like he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. Everything got real quiet. Older, wiser gentleman stood up in the back and he said, son, you're exactly right. D.L. Moody does not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. However, the Holy Spirit does have a monopoly on D.L. Moody and that's why we need to get him here. Does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on your life? Does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on the church at Brook Hills? What happens when we come to the end of our strength and we say, show your power. Show the power that only you can give. I mean, imagine... Acts chapter 1 verse 15 tells us there were only about 120 people that actually stayed around in Jerusalem to do this thing. Only 120 of them. That's pretty amazing. Even what secular scholars would say was the greatest religious teacher in the history of the world at the end of his life, he leaves the earth and there's only 120 people to show for it. Is that a failure? That's a tiny church. It's not thousands of people. It's a tiny church, but it's the genius of Jesus' strategy that he said, I'm going to give you my spirit. And the rest of the book of Acts tells us that these 120 people, especially these 11 guys, turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ because of their own strength. No, they weren't the sharpest tools in the shed. They had the Holy Spirit of God, though, and it made all the difference. He fills us with his power. Second, I want you to see that he provides us. He gives us a purpose. The Holy Spirit gives us a purpose in our lives. Now, when you think about the Holy Spirit in your life, I want you to ask the question, why has God given you the Holy Spirit? And as we look in Scripture, there's all kinds of different answers for that. Well, the Holy Spirit leads us. The Holy Spirit guides our our steps, guides our paths. That's His purpose. Well, He gives us gifts. We have different spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit gives those gifts. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. We sang about that a little while ago. He comforts us when we're going through difficult times. And the Holy Spirit does all of those things. What I want to propose to you this morning is those purposes are secondary compared to one other purpose of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I want to show it to you in Scripture. We're going to take a tour through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I want to show you what I believe is the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit. So, let's do some Bible drill. Turn with me back to the very beginning of the Bible, Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Fourth book in the Bible. Numbers chapter 11, and I want you to look at verse 24 and 25. I I would encourage you, as as we're going through these verses, underline them, put a note by them, See what the Holy Spirit's doing here. Numbers chapter 11, verse 24 and 25. I wonder sometimes if our, if our belief about the Holy Spirit is based more on our experience than it is in Scripture. We need to make sure we have a biblical foundation for what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Look at Numbers chapter 11. Look at verse 24 and 25. It says, Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Now listen to this. The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him. And he took of the spirit that was on Moses and put the spirit on the 70 elders. And when the spirit of God rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. So when the spirit came on them, what did they do? They prophesied. They began speaking about God's word. See if that happens a few other times. Look with me over at Numbers chapter 24. Turn me over a few chapters. Numbers chapter 24. We're looking at the role of the Holy Spirit. And as we already said, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people, then he would leave. Come upon people, then he would leave. So let's look at Numbers chapter 24. Look with me at verse 2. 
Numbers 24.2 says, Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe. The Spirit of God came upon him, and he uttered his oracle, the oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly. So when the Spirit of God came on him, what did he do? He began to speak, right? He uttered this oracle. I think this continues. Look over at 2 Samuel chapter 23. Turn me over a few books. It's right after 1 Samuel. You'll come to 2 Samuel chapter 23. I want you to look with me at verse 2. Now we're looking at the purpose of the Spirit of God. Don't forget, as the Spirit comes upon people, what are they doing? Look at 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2. The Bible says, underline it, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke, the rock of Israel said to me. So we see, and when the Spirit came on him, the word of God was on his tongue. He began to speak the word of God. Let me show you one more time in the Old Testament, then we'll move on to the New. Turn me over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, then Ezekiel, chapter 11. We could go through many, many, many different places in Ezekiel, but this is just one example of a phrase we see repeated over and over and over again in the book of Ezekiel, as well as the other prophets for that matter. But look at Ezekiel chapter 11. Look with me at verse 5. We're looking at the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Don't forget. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 5. Look what it says. It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon me, and He told me to do what? He told me to say, this is what the Lord says. This is what you were saying, O house of Israel, but I know what is going through your mind. So when the Spirit came on him, he began to speak. Now, this is something we've seen, obviously, throughout the Old Testament. Now let's think about Luke. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Let's go to the New Testament. Luke chapter 1. What is the purpose of the Holy Spirit according to Scripture? Look at Luke chapter 1. And go ahead and give you a preview of what we're about to see. What I want us to do is I want us to do a run-through. There are eight times that Luke uses the, the, the phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. He talks about people being filled with the Holy Spirit eight times. And I want you to see if this, there's a commonality between all eight of those times that maybe squares with the Old Testament. Look at Luke chapter 1, verse 15. What does it say? It says, He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Circle that in your Bibles. Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the first time we see it. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn their hearts of their fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Who's this talking about? John the Baptist. Now what was John the Baptist's whole purpose? Proclaim the coming of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. The Holy Spirit, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit and he would begin to speak about the coming of the Lord. Look at chapter 1, verse 41. Same chapter, look over in verse 41. Circle this time you see filled with the Holy Spirit in your Bible. In verse 41 it says that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was, here it is, filled with the Holy Spirit. Circle that and then look at what happens next. In a loud voice she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. When Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, what did she do? She spoke. You catching on here? One more time in Luke chapter 1. Look at verse 67. Verse 67. Let's look at Zechariah. It says in verse 67, his father Zechariah was, here it is again, filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, praise be the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. So when Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, what did he do? He spoke. It's like a broken record or what? Over and over again in Scripture. 
Spirit's filling people, and they're starting to talk. They're starting to talk about the word of the Lord. They're prophesying. They're exclaiming. They're speaking. Well, let's come to the book of Acts. Book of Acts. Come back over with me to this Luke's second book. Look in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Let's look at verse 4. When the Holy Spirit comes down on the New Testament church for the first time at Pentecost, what happens there? Same thing? Look at verse 4, chapter 2. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. There you go. Circle it. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Speaking in all kinds of different languages. Spirit comes upon them, they begin to speak. Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 8. What happens here? This is Peter. Coming before the Sanhedrin with John. And it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. There you go. Mark it down in your Bibles. What did he do? He said to them, rulers and elders of the people. He begins to preach about salvation. Salvation is found in no one else, Peter later says. There's no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. He begins to preach when the Spirit comes upon him. One more time in Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. Listen to this. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what did they do? They spoke the Word of God boldly. Two more times. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Told you we are going to do a little Bible drill. Acts chapter 9, verse 17 through 20. Look at what happens here. We've got to see the consistency. Scripture's repeating this over and over again. Verse 17 in Acts chapter 9. Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and may be, here it is, filled with the Holy Spirit. So what happened? Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Spirit comes on Saul, at once he began to preach. One more time, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, again with Saul or Paul. I want you to look with me in verse 9. Acts chapter 13, verse 9. As Saul, Paul has been sent off on his first missionary journey, it says, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. So eight times, Luke says, people were filled with the Holy Spirit. And all eight times, the automatic result is they began to speak about God. They began to speak about the gospel. They began to speak the word of God.
listening to Unity in Christ, the English Hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones. 
Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount. Hello listeners, this is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we studied Jesus' words, You are the salt and light of the world. Were you able to live the past week as the salt and the light of the world? I hope and pray that we are able to live as salt and the light in our world as we begin our next lesson. We are studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is located in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. If we divide chapter 5 into three sections, the first section is on the Beatitudes. The second section is on the last lesson we studied about the salt and light. The third section is about God's kingdom and the laws we must follow. We can further divide the third section into two parts. The first part consisting of chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, which speaks of Jesus Christ and how he came to fulfill the commandments. The rest of chapter 5 talks about how the laws were interpreted wrongly and teaches us the real and correct meaning. So, are you able to outline Matthew chapter 5 in your head? The lesson we will be studying today is on the third part of chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The law and prophets in verse 17 are from what we now call the Old Testament. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. When Jesus said he would fulfill the law, he meant he would accomplish or finalize the law. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill or accomplish the Old Testament? The Old Testament is about the Messiah who was supposed to come, and the focus of the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It consists not only of the birth and death of Jesus, but also the history teachings, and miracles with Jesus as the focus. This is because the Old Testament is about how God used Israel to sacrifice his son Jesus to save us and promise us the kingdom of heaven. The reason that Jesus came to this world is to fulfill the Old Testament. He fulfills the Old Testament with his birth, death, and resurrection. In verse 18, Jesus says this about the laws he would be fulfilling. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, 
not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The law mentioned in this verse is the Old Testament. The smallest letter and stroke refers to the Hebrew language used back then. The law, or the Old Testament, will never be fulfilled until the smallest letters and strokes are all accomplished. Verse 17 and 18 explain how Jesus will fulfill the Old Testament. It also explains to us how we should act or behave. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So why did Jesus speak of this? Jesus was speaking of a group of people who belittled the importance of the commandments. It did not follow or teach the commandments they did not like. Now, who were these people? Yes, the people Jesus spoke of are introduced in the next verse as the scribes and the Pharisees. This is why Jesus said in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. To understand this verse, we have to understand who the scribes and Pharisees are. The scribes recorded the copies of the Bible, studied and taught them to people. The Pharisees obeyed the law and made sure to keep the heredity in the line of elders. They were the leaders in the Jewish community. The mistake of the Pharisees' lives are outlined in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus criticized the scribes and the Pharisees and told his disciples not to follow their ways and actions. Why did Jesus criticize the scribes and the Pharisees when they were trying so hard to obey the law? Because what they taught was different from what they believed. Jesus referred to the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites six times in chapter 23. Jesus said everything they did was just so they would be noticed by men. They did not obey the laws because they loved God, but they did so because they loved themselves. They obeyed the laws to be noticed and honored by men and to exalt themselves. Do you remember the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees, who exalted themselves, will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If we follow the teachings and actions of the scribes and the Pharisees, we too will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The important thing is not just to obey the law, but instead it is the reason and motivation why you obey the law. Your love for God should be the reason and motivation for following the words of God and obeying the laws. Jesus does not want us to look like someone who is just obeying the laws from the outside. Instead, he wants us to live according to and obey the laws from the inside out. How do you feel about what Jesus is saying here? It's hard enough to just obey the laws. How are we supposed to search our inner reason and motivation for following the law? Doesn't this sound like something one would say who believes that this is the most that Jesus is looking for? and that it's okay for us to follow him halfway? It's easy for us to be frustrated and feel sad about Jesus' words. Then is Jesus' command impossible to follow? How will we be able to follow his command? This is possible only through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit must change us from the inside. In Ezekiel 
chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. We as disciples who believe that we have been saved by Jesus have received the Holy Spirit in our hearts. He is helping us to obey the commandments. The Holy Spirit in us helps us center God in our lives and love Him more. This allows us to live our lives according to the commandments. As you become closer to God with the Holy Spirit in your hearts, you will notice yourself loving God more and living your life through His words. Let's go over today's lesson again. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. The Old Testament focuses on Jesus and gives witness to Him, and all of it will be accomplished. If we act like the scribes and the Pharisees and follow the laws just on the outside, then we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to obey the laws from the inside out and be motivated to live by them. This is only possible through the Holy Spirit inside of us and changing us. This is taught to us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Next time, we will study the last part of chapter 5. We will learn about the six laws that were interpreted and followed wrongly. We will learn the real meaning of the commandments through the words of Jesus. This concludes today's episode. Thank you for listening and God bless. God rest you merry gentlemen Let nothing you dismay Remember Christ our Savior Was born on Christmas
praises all you within this place And with true love and brotherhood each other now embrace This holy tide of Christmas all of the dofted face examples in the Bible where God uses the leaders of the Gentiles, whether they do well or not. God used King Pharaoh of Egypt to place Joseph as the commissioner to prepare the sons of Jacob to be the nation of Israel in the future. In Babylon, God shows his authority by using King Nebuchadnezzar and Darius to protect Daniel and his three friends. God also uses King Cyrus of Persia so that the Israelites can return to their promised land. They were able to rebuild the temples that were destroyed. King Ahasuerus is used by God to save the people of Israel from the plot by Haman. These people were not chosen by God because they were glorified. They were chosen to show God's absolute authority. Who gets elected the next president is a very important fact. But the more important thing is that God is willing to use that person for His will. Even Jesus submitted to the authority of Pilate. Jesus did this to fulfill God's will. Romans chapter 13 verse 1 tells us, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. We do not know if the newly elected president will help us live our Christian lives or hinder it. What we must understand is that even if the new president hinders our Christian lives, God appointed this person to the office and gave him permission to rule over the country. If we are faced with hard times, then we must comply and take the hard times that come our way. And if we do get the chance to spread the gospel of God, then we take that chance to do our best. It should not be a big problem to us who becomes president. There will not be a big change. That is because it does not affect our salvation. This must be the time that we all pray. We must pray that under the new leader, this country will move away from all the sins that it has committed and that all the things that went against God are turned around. 
That is how we must act. We must return to the words in the Bible. We must meditate on God's words. And we must live according to God's words. I hope that we Christians no longer fight with each other about this issue because that is not God's will. And if it is not God's will, then we must be able to stop these reactions in the church family. I hope that all of you do not spend the next week arguing with each other about the new leader, but rather praying that he will be used by our God to do his will and to move this country away from all the destruction. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope all of you have a wonderful week, and I will see you again next week. Thank you, and God bless. Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow. If this life I lose, I will follow.